welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 53, where we go back, back to the to past the and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and directly from the Warp Zone. Mm. Mm. What are we? We're still in our five-part series, our 50th episode yeah. five-part <laughs> series right now, Chris. <laughs> We're still experiencing crisis. Uh, that's right. Well, tell us a little bit about it. Well, as many of you might know, this is a 12-issue Max series, cover dated April 1985 through March 1986, written by Marv Wolfman, pencil by George Perez, with inks by Dick Giordano, Jerry Ordway, and Mike DiCarlo, colors by Anthony Tallon, Tom Ziuko, and Carl Gafford, uh, leaded by John Costanza, edited by Marv Wolfman. Cover price for, I think, all the books we're going to be discussing today is 75 yeah. centavos. These are all 75 cents. And the books we'll be doing today are 9, 10, and 11. Mm-hmm. So next week we'll conclude with the big 12 issue wrap-up. Uh, but first we're going to talk a little bit, and I mean very, very little bit, about the creators. If you want more full uh, bios in, in our 50th episode, and actually really the last uh, couple we did, we did more complete bios and we did even more complete bios in our teen titans episode who is mm-hmm. number, number 25 number 25 there you go chris has it all and a list in front of his face uh <laughs> so uh, marv wolfman was born marvin arthur wolfman uh, may 13 1946 in brooklyn new york with penciler george perez marv relaunched dc's teen titans in a special preview in dc comics presents number 26 with an october 1980 cover date in the very next month they had a formal debut with Teen Titans number one, and after a few short years, he was writing Crisis and in Infinite Earths. Hey, I like that. Yeah. Uh, hop across the table. George Perez, born June 9th, 1954, in the South Bronx, New York City. In 1980, while still drawing the Avengers for Marvel, Perez began working for their rival, DC. Uh, began dra- drawing the new Teen Titans with that first appearance in DC Comics Presents number 26. Uh, he would eventually take a leave of absence from New Teen Titans in 1984 to focus on his next project with his buddy Marv Wolfman, which is Crisis on Infinite Earths. And here we are. So we'll, we'll try to do our best to do a recap of the last <laughs> seven issues, right? Uh, or eight issues. Uh, it's uh, not easy to do, folks. But, and we'll, no. I think we'll talk more about why that is next episode, but... Uh, essentially, uh, a fellow named Krona and another fellow named Pariah dared to look at the dawn of time through some special portals, and this made antimatter leak into the multiverse, and it's been destroying Earths left and right. And Pariah is made to see each Earth as it dies, and he cries about it. Yes, he does. Uh, before Earth 3 is consumed by the antimatter, uh, the world's only hero, which is Alexander Luther, sent his progeny off in an interdimension shattering rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it lands on Earth 1 on a satellite belonging to the Monitor, a guy who is monitoring the situation and seems to know an awful lot about it. Uh, he has an assistant named Lila, who transforms into Harbinger to assemble some heroes from various Earths to save Earths 1 and 2. Uh, while getting heroes, Harbinger is taken over by an evil presence, one that is presumably behind all of this Earth-eating. This would be the Anti-Monitor. Right. Uh, we'll just you know put that there now. Right. <laughs> this is the uh, the big bad guy of the series. He is the Anti-Monitor. They, they tried to keep it secret to, to a certain point, but... No point in keeping it secret now. We know who he is. Yeah. Uh, so heroes, they do battle with these shadow monsters at various points in Earth-1 and Earth-2's history, while Pariah is summoned to monitor satellite. 
The Monitor explains that he is the one sending Pariah around to dying Earths, and that just annoys Pariah greatly. But just then, before he can really lay into him, Harbinger, possessed by the Anti-Monitor, kills the Monitor. And this releases a burst of energy that powers up these towers, that is what these heroes are protecting. And this begins combining Earths 1 and 2, and sticks them in like a pocket universe to the side the Anti-Monitor can't get to. But they're also, they're blending together, that, that's also its own problem. Uh, they're also later able to shove the other three remaining Earths, which is Earth 4, the Charlton Earth, Earth S, which is the quality, right? Uh, oh, Shazam. Uh, that's the Shazam Earth, I'm sorry, the, the Captain Marvel, and then Earth X is the quality yes. uh, uh, characters into this pocket universe, but now they're all combining, that, that's a, an even bigger problem. Yeah, they're all Moijin. Uh, meanwhile, heroes head to the Antimatter universe to take on the Anti-Monitor on his own satellite. This is where Supergirl winds up giving her up, up her own life, destroying the satellite and saving her cousin Superman. Then the Anti-Monitor sets it to uh, to building an Antimatter cannon so he can destroy the remaining worlds from a distance. I mean, he's so petty. He's not even eating them anymore. He just wants to <laughs> shoot them out of the sky. Yep. <laughs> now, the uh, this is where the Flash winds up giving up his life to take that out. Um, also, thanks to Alexander Luther, it looks like the Anti-Monitor has been dispersed as well. That's right. And that's when we start right into Crisis in Infinite Earths number nine, War Zone. The cover to this one really is a George Perez special. It's like, mm -hmm. it's it's almost like the first cover, but the villain side, right? It's it's like three dozen yeah. supervillains from the DCU heading straight for the reader, uh, Brainiac ship looming in the background. On Oa, the Guardians are reinstating Guy Gardner as a Green, Green Lantern. This has happened before, but I think <laughs> I think this is the first time we're really dealing with Green Guy Gardner here. Uh, mm -hmm. He first appeared in Green Lantern's number 50, 59. That was March 1968, cover date by John Broom and Gil Kane. Turns out that when Eben Sir gave Hal Jordan his Green Lantern ring, the next closest person was a gym teacher named Guy Gardner, who would have done just as well if he had just been a few feet closer than Hal. Uh, Hal first meets him using a memory machine on Oa, which shows him what might have happened had Gardner gotten the ring. At the end of the issue, that issue, Hal goes to meet Guy in reality and they hit it off. And Guy would pitch in as Hal's backup when he was off Earth a few times pre-crisis, but right here is sort of going to be his debut as his own Lantern's character, more regularly mixed into the proceedings. Yeah, the guy, the guy we think about now. Right. Um, now, just as Guy is inducted into the core, some antimatter hits the Citadel on Oa, destroying it and killing all but one Guardian. Uh, Guy Gardner is tasked with getting revenge for this tragedy, and he swears to do it. He takes off into outer space to to uh, Green Lantern Volume 2, number 195, according to the caption. Uh, now, aboard uh, Brainiac's headship, we get some villains assembled here. And there's a bunch we haven't met yet, so we're going to bio just the new ones. Uh, we got Ace of Spades. Uh, in this incarnation, an android who first appeared in Justice League of America number 205, that's June 1982 cover date, by Jerry Conway and Don Heck. He's a member of the Royal Flush Gang run by Hector Hammond, uh, who goes by the name Wildcard here. Uh, Ace of Spades is super strong, and being an android can be rebuilt if he's destroyed. That's right. Uh, there's Black Adam. This is from the uh, Shazam Captain Marvel family. This is the ancient Egyptian Teth Adam. He first appeared in the Marvel Family Number no. 1, December 1945 cover by uh, Otto Bender and C.C. Beck. The wizard Shazam names Teth Adam as his successor, but the power goes to his head and he overthrows the pharaoh. 
So Shazam names him Black Adam, and then I guess he waited 3,000 years for Billy Batson to show up. That was it. He was just like, ah, I'll wait for another kid. He needs someone with a pure heart. It right. took a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We got Black Manta, and this egg-headed fella first appeared in Aquaman number 35, September 1967 cover date, by Bob Haney and Nick Cardi. At this time, he has no origin. He's just a mysterious guy with a harpoon gun and some way cool scuba gear that uh, doesn't like Aquaman all that much. Yeah, and that's good enough for that. Uh, sure. Black Mass is Jeffrey Thibodeau. 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 Thank you very much. <laughs> Emerged into the world in Justice League of America, number 234, December 1985. Cover date by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. A 500-plus-year-old alien named the Overmaster gave frail physicist Jeffrey some wristbands that give him a hulking body and gravity-based powers. Yeah, we'll meet the Overmaster in a bit, too. Uh, we got the Black Spider. Eric Needham first appeared in Detective Comics number 463, that's September 1976 cover, by Jerry Conway and Ernie Chua. A former junkie, he dresses up as the Black Spider and kills drug dealers, which annoys Batman, among others. Uh, he's technically an anti-hero, but he hangs out with villains an awful lot. Yeah, at this time, it might have still been weird to be killing all of your uh, <laughs> bad guys. <laughs> uh, Black Star, this is Rachel Berkowitz, came into the world in Supergirl number 13, November 1983, by Paul Kupperberg and Carmine Infantino. This is actually the issue where they also dropped the daring adventures of uh, yep. part of the name. Born Jewish but raised by Nazis, Rachel is a brilliant physicist who runs a Nazi cult. Okie dokie. We got, we got Bolt. Uh, this guy first appeared in Blue Devil number 6. This is November 1984 by Gary Cohn, Dan Mishkin, and Paris Collins. Uh, he's sort of a, the dark side of Blue Devil, a special effects artist named Larry Balant. Balatinsky, uh, who makes a suit that can fire energy blasts and allow teleportation. Uh, there's Bulldozer. This isn't the guy from the Easy Company. This is the villain that debuted in Supergirl Volume 2, Number 4, February 1983, by Paul Kupperberg and Carmen Infantino. And he's a member of the Chicago-based criminal gang known as The Gang. And he likes to smash into stuff. It's pretty cut and dry. <laughs> and that, that, that was during the Daring Adventures of, right? That, that would have been the Daring yeah. Adventures of Supergirl, yeah. We got Bug-Eyed Bandit. Bertram Larvan, Larvan ugh, first appeared in Adam, number 26. This is August-September 1966 issue by uh, Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. Bertram is an inventor and criminal that controls a variety of mechanical insects. Uh, here's one of my favorites. We got Captain Nazi. This is the bad captain. He first appeared in Master Comics, number 21, December 1941, by William Woolfolk and Mark Rayboy. He's like Captain America, but for Nazis. So basically Captain America. Yeah, well, based uh, <laughs> in current continuity. Yes, I'm dating the show. Uh, we got Catman. Thomas Blake first appeared in Detective Comics number 311. It was January 1963 by Bill Finger and Jim Mooney. He's a hunter of big jungle cats. Uh, Thomas got bored and decided to use his hunting skills to commit crime. Yeah, and he kind of dresses in a cat version of Batman's suit with arms. Yes. Uh, Cheetah. Now, we did meet Cheetah. I believe that was issue two. That mm -hmm. was the Golden Age Cheetah, but in this issue, we see the Silver Age Cheetah. And I want to mention also the Golden Age Cheetah, which shouldn't be possible, but who? this is, <laughs> this is uh, wacky times going on here. Uh, the one featured in this issue uh, is Earth 2 Cheetah Priscilla Rich's niece, Deborah Domain. Uh, she first appeared in Wonder Woman number 274, December 1980, by Jerry Conway and Jose Delbo. Deborah was an ecologist who struck up a friendship with Wonder Woman. 
but then found out about her aunt's past and decided to follow in Priscilla's footsteps. She had some mind control help by Cobra, and we'll meet that guy shortly. Mm-hmm. We got Chemo. This this walking tub of waste materials debuted in Showcase number thirty nine. This is a July August issue from nineteen sixty two, uh, by Robert Kaniga and Ross Andrew. A gigantic human shaped vessel for toxic chemicals gains sentience and becomes a walking gigantic human shaped vessel <laughs> for toxic chemicals. Pretty much. Uh, You'll know him if you see him. Yeah, he's he's the <laughs> giant guy full of chemicals. Uh, is Cheshire. Uh, Jade Nguyen first appeared in New Teen Titans Annual Number no. 2, 1983, by Wolfman and Perez. At this point, she's just a swords wielding ninja lady that fights the Teen Titans, but her character looms a lot larger post crisis. Absolutely. Uh, we got Kronos. David Clinton first showed up in The Atom Number no. 3, 1962, by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. A recurring convict, David Clinton decided that the problem with his capers was a matter of timing. So he somehow masters timing and also throws weapons fashioned to look like clocks or clock parts at people. You know, this is the way you used to become a villain back in the day. You know, you, just you like, find a theme and you go with it. It could be anything. You know, gee, I like uh, <laughs> screws. I'm the screw. And I'm going to throw giant screws at people. Uh, Circe. Now, in Greek mythology, Circe is a goddess of magic that screws with people. And she has essentially the same role in DC Comics. Uh, first appeared as a blonde in Wonder Woman number 37. That was September, October 1949, cover date by Robert Kaniger and Harry G. Peter. She's a foil to Wonder Woman in the Silver Age. Her hair turns black for some reason. She specializes in turning people into animals. Hmm. I get the, I get the other clock one here. We got Clock King, Bill Tuckman, debuted in World's Finest Comics, number 111. This is August 1960 by France Heron and Lee Elias. Uh, when he's kept from robbing a bank by Green Arrow, Tuckman swears revenge by committing crimes based on timing. Yeah. So uh, we had Kronos, and now we have Bargain Basement Kronos. That's right. Even though he's better known now thanks to the animated series. Animated series, sure. Uh, yeah, he was the he was the also ran back in the day. He's the dollar still, yeah. Now there's a uh, Clue Master, aka Mister Not the Riddler, debuted in Detective <laughs> Comics number three fifty one, May nineteen sixty six, cover by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. At this time, he's a guy who failed to discover Batman's true identity, so he joined the Injustice League and pulled crimes badly. That's all. That really is his whole thing now. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Cosmic King, Lavar Bolto, manifested in our time in Superman number 147. This is an August 1961 cover by Jerry Siegel and Kurt Swan, though he's based on Cosmic Boy, who was created by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. Uh, Bolto was a scientist who, stri- who tried to make a ray that could transmute chemical elements. A lot of, the, a lot of bad guys did that back mm-hmm. in the day. That's we're going to hear, a, we're going to meet a few of them. <laughs> good way to pull a crime, you know, transmutation. It's simple stuff. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he, wa- he wound up falling in front of the ray and found that it imbued him with this power innately, which was good enough for LeVar. Yeah, he said, eh, so I need to carry a ray. That's even better. I got an yep. extra pocket. Uh, <laughs> Count Vertigo. The good Count first appeared in World's Finest Comics, number 251, July 1978, cover by Jerry Conway and Trevor Von Eden. Count Werner Vertigo is a member of the British royal family whose parents fled England during World War II. Tinkering with a special hearing aid meant to correct an imbalance, 
He found out that he could screw up other people's balance and then commit crimes. And it's a good thing his family named Vertigo, that it kind of all fell into place for him. Very advantageous. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, The Crime Doctor. Matthew Thorne debuted in Detective Comics number 77. This is July 1943 by Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Originally named Bradford Thorne, he's a surgeon that works on wounded criminals. Uh, we would imagine that this is a strictly cash operation. It usually is that way. Cash or favors. Yeah. And I uh, wonder if it was he ever revealed to be related to Rupert Thorne? He was. Later after Crisis, okay. they, they, they call it a retcon, but they more just kind of developed him a little bit more that he was, I think he was his uncle or something like that. Oh, okay. Uh, that makes old. sense. But uh, yeah, at this point, he really is just floating out there and probably hadn't been seen since, since then, <laughs> since 1943, uh, there's Deathstroke. Slade Joseph Wilson first appeared in New Teen Titans number two, December 1980, by Wolfman and Perez. While a decorated U.S. Army soldier, Slade was given some of that Captain America juice and became nigh unstoppable. Now he's a hired mercenary and usually goes up against the Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, is there a doctor in the house? How about five? All right, <laughs> we got Doctor Double X, Simon X. E-C-K-S, get it? Uh, First appeared in Detective Comics number 261. This is November 1958. Was created by Dave Wood and Sheldon Moldoff. As Dr. X, that is single X, he had the power to create an energy twin who would wear a slightly different costume, one with two X's on it naturally. Oh, and they they could do a, a third one, but that guy was always drunk, right? He had three X's. Either that or he was in the adults-only section. <laughs> that's right. One of the other, yeah, that's right. That was, for, that was for other comics that get behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. Uh, Dr. Phosphorus. This guy's name is Alexander Sartorius. First appeared in Detective Comics number 469, May 1977, cover by Steve Englehart and Walter Simonson. He's a member of the exclusive Gotham City Tobacconist Club who is building a nuclear power plant in the city with Rupert Thorne. Was transformed to a phosphoric fella after being exposed to radioactive sand which had been neatly moved exactly one element to the right on the periodic table. It went from silicon to phosphorus. Boing, whoops, you know. That's how it works, right? Yep. We got Dr. Psycho. Real name, Cyril Psycho. (laughs) Really? Uh, He first appeared in Wonder Woman number 160. This is February 1966. was created by Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, William Moulton Marston, and Harry G. Peter. A lot of creators for such a little dude. Yeah. Uh, he was a tiny little misogynistic character, continually rejected by women, who became obsessed with Wonder Woman, which makes me wonder if this was not created in the modern day. Yeah, it could um, even work. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, has, has the power of ectokinesis, in which he can extract ectoplasm from the spirit world and use it for whatever someone might want to use ectoplasm for. Maybe a ectoplasm and peanut butter sandwich? I don't know. I'm not sure. What Delicious. Dr. Regulus, Dr. Zaxton Regulus, first appeared in Adventure Comics number 348, September 1966, cover by Jim Shooter and George Papp. He worked at Metropolis Fusion Power in the far-flung future and experimented with gold as a means of power. He became sloppy in his work, and during a delivery there... During a delivery, there was an explosion that injured one of his delivery boys, Dirk Morgana, the future Legionnaire Sunboy. Regulus wears a golden suit with tremendous solar powers. 
Dr. Spectro. Thomas Avery has been lighting up the sky since Charlton Comics' Captain Adam, number 79. It's February 1966 by Joe Gill and Steve Ditko. Uh, he's got the ability to develop prisms which, with which he can alter and control human emotions. Uh, Post-crisis, he would be linked with the equally silly Roy G. Bivolo, the Rainbow Raider. Uh, not pertinent for this series, but we just really wanted to say Roy G. Bivolo. And look, we did it again. Any, any chance we get, we'll do it. Roy G. Bivolo. Okay, uh, the Dragon <laughs> Dragon King. First appearance was All-Star Squadron Number 4, December 1981, by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. Imperial Japanese scientist during the perpetually World War II era the All-Star Squadron operates in. Created a specialized nerve gas, K887. Combined the power of the Holy Grail and the Spear of Destiny for the Nazi government to create a field of arcane magic that keeps certain pow powerful superheroes off their turf during wartime, lest they become mind-controlled puppets of the Reich. We got Eclipso, Galid, and or Bruce Gordon, depending on what origin is in vogue. Uh, first appeared in House of Secrets number 61, this is July 1963 cover date. Uh, photographer Bruce Gordon went to Diablo Island to snap a few pics of an eclipse. Uh, natives on the island sought to stop him from stealing their sun god by taking a photo, I would assume. Uh, the witch doctor Mofir attacked him, cutting him with the tribe's sacred black diamond. And ever since, during an eclipse, or really just anything passing in front of the sun for a moment, Bruce would become eclipse. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a full eclipse. You know, it no, can literally, like, oh, a plane flew over. It, yeah. it, maybe if you hold the paper up to read it, you, know, you block <laughs> out the sun, you turn it into eclipse. Uh, also reminds me of my favorite song, Gonna Steal My Sun God. Remember that? That's my favorite, Off yes. my feet. Anyway. Yeah, uh, does she like lemon tarts? That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Evil Star. This is the leader of the Starlings, and he first appeared in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 37, June 1965, cover by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. An Aoran scientist who drew power from the stars to cheat death, created the star brand, not that one, and became immortal. Fastball. John Malone first appeared in Justice League of America, number 234, January 1985, by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. And he's a baseball-themed baddie. Uh, he's a member of the Overmasters cadre. Uh, more on him and them in a bit. In a bit. Uh, Felix Faust, this is Dekan Dresch, which sounds more like a code name than Felix Faust, quite <laughs> frankly. First appeared in Justice League of America number 10, March 1962, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. A sorcerer who has been alive since 5000 B.C., who was banished for a time to another dimension by Nomo, the king of the African Empire of Kor. In the mid-1920s, crazy magician Dresch inadvertently happened upon this dimension and released the spirit of Felix Faust, which promptly took a residence in his own body. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got the Fiddler. Uh, Isaac Bowen first appeared in All Flash number 32, way back in January 1948, by Robert Kaniga and Lee Elias. While imprisoned in India... Bowen learned some Eastern mysticism, including the power of music to hypnotize and control cobra. Cobras. Uh, he took up the fiddle and used his new knowledge, first to kill his teacher and then to start a four-string life of crime. That's, you know, he had a, he had a plan and he followed through. Mm -hmm. The Floronic Man. This is Jason Woodrow. First appeared in Adam Number 1, July 1962, by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. Originally known as the Plant Master, our favorite dryad attempted to use plant growth to take over the earth. Uh, that was unsuccessful. Former member of the Secret Society of Supervillains and eventual thorn in the side 
Pun. For Swamp Thing, plays a pivotal role in the anatomy lesson wherein we learn that this is the issue 22, I want to say. Am I wrong? 21? 21, yeah, 21, 21, 21 22, uh, yeah. Saga of Swamp Thing, uh, where we learn that Swampy and Alec Holland are not quite one and the same. Mm-hmm. Um, he will be best known as a member of the New Guardians, but that's later. Yeah. Uh, that's right. incredible book. Hugely known. Uh, Everyone knows yeah. that from there. Uh, we got The Gambler. Stephen Shop the Third started hustling back in Green Lantern, Volume One, Number Twelve, wow. way back in June 1944, and uh, was created by Harry Cutner and Martin Nodell. I'm guessing uh, researcher Peter Sanderson was yeah. working overtime on really? this one. Uh, he's the son of a gambler, presumably named Stephen Sharp Jr. Uh, the gambler was turned down by his beloved for her hand in marriage until he could prove not to have inherited the gambling gene from his daddy. <laughs> well, in the meantime, his would-be betrothed would run off and get hitched to a man who won gambling in a sweepstakes. So really, the gambler's life of crime is all her fault. Yeah, really. You know, you know, she basically forced him to gamble on it and lost. That's mm-hmm. all. Yep. all that happened. There's Ghost. Here's another oldie. Henry Suffrage is not the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, but it's a villain who first appeared way back in WoW Comics number 2, June 1941 cover date. And we assume he was created by someone? Yeah. Couldn't really even guess. I have no idea. But uh, the DC Wikia has him pegged as a citizen of Earth S and explains that he's the enemy of Mr. Scarlet. And that's good enough for us. That's all there is to Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. The Golden Glider. Captain Cold, Leonard Snot's oldest sister, Linda, Lisa Snot, first appeared in Flash 250, June 1977 cover, and was created by Carrie Bates and Irv Novick. She attempted to become a figure skater for the Futura Ice Show under the name Lisa Star, best known for her high-speed spins. Uh, she became romantically involved with her coach, Roscoe Dillon, better known to us as the villainous Top. After the top was killed in an, during an altercation with the Flash, Lisa vowed vengeance. Yeah, it actually becomes a pretty cool, complex thing because you got her brothers and the rogues, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, I always like this that little, whatever it is, uh, Gorilla Grodd. This angry gorilla first showed up in the Flash number one hundred six, May nineteen fifty nine, by June Br- John Broom and Carmine Infantino. He was a normal ape until a radioactive meteor crashed into his home in Africa and made him super smart and gave him telepathic powers. He constructed Gorilla City with Solovar, another super smart gorilla that got telepathic powers, but eventually sought to command a gorilla army or whatever and became Solovar's arch enemy as well as the Flash's recurring foe. We got the Huntress, not that one. Right. This is Paula Brooks Croc. She first appeared in Sensation Comics number 68. This is August 1947. She was created by uh, Mort Meskin. Uh, she saw Manhunter, this is the Paul Kirk version, right. as something of an idol, and took to martial arts and marksmanship in hopes of becoming his partner in crime fighting. Uh, she would turn. She would ultimately turn to crime and become a foe for Wildcat. She would join the Injustice Society, where she'd meet her future husband, the Sportsmaster, uh, better known, or, or lesser known, actually, as Lawrence Crusher Croc. Uh, she resurfaced in the early 80s, this is our time, uh, in All-Star Squadron under the alias Tigress, probably because uh, Huntress was already taken. Yeah, that never stopped him from naming new Manhunters, so I don't know what the deal is with that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, hyena. Uh, this is a woman named Summer Day. Yes, Actually, we're not talking about a nice summer day, but a name. First appeared in Firestorm number 4, September 1978, and was created by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. Summer's father, Bert Day, was disappointed to have a daughter instead of a son, and so 
He pushed her into more traditionally masculine activity during her youth. She would enroll in the police academy, but dropped out to join the Peace Corps. While in Nairobi, she saved a wounded tribal warrior who bit her in the throat for her troubles, and this would transform her into a were-hyena. Mm-hmm. We got the icicle. Jor McCant first appeared way back in All-American Comics number 90. It was November 1947 by Robert Kaniga and Erwin Hassan. Uh, Green Lantern Alan Scott witnessed noted physicist and apparent inventor of an ice pistol, Jor McCant, being shot dead by gangster Lanky Leeds aboard a luxury liner. Uh, when a costume character calling himself the Icicle appeared, Scott assumed it to be Leeds, but it was McCant instead. Oh, yeah, it was also McCant who killed Lanky by temporarily transforming their faces to look like one another. Wow, you can really do some crazy stuff with ice guns. I, don't, I, I wouldn't so. have expected that. I mean, <laughs> good gosh. Uh, there we got The Image. This is Earth 4's Charlton The Image. First appeared in Captain Adam number 87, August 1967 cover by David Kaler and Jim Aparo. He's an enemy of Nightshade and wears a costume with a lowercase i that doesn't look totally dissimilar to the logo for Image Comics. Looks just like it. Yeah. <laughs> we got a Kanjiro, surprisingly not an anthropomorphic kangaroo, <laughs> but in fact, a man from the planet Dor. Kanjir first appeared in Justice League of America number three, March 1961 cover by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Just a generic dude from a warring planet. Not a whole lot else to say. Yeah, they drag him out when they need to have like a small time space villain, right? When that's it. Like, it yeah. when they need a guy that like is just pulling a heist, then that's kind of <laughs> uh, Killer Frost. This is a different Killer Frost than you might know personally, know right now. Louise Lincoln first appeared in Firestorm Volume 2, number 21, March 1984 cover by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. Was a colleague and friend of Crystal Frost that was the original Killer Frost. After Crystal's passing in that very same Firestorm, Volume 2, Number 21, she tested the reliability of the experiment that turned Crystal into killer via repetition, and what do you know, it worked the same way. She turned out to be even more ruthless than the original. So that's nice. Very nice. Uh, Killer Moth. Drury Walker first flapped his wings in Batman number 63, February 1951 cover by Bill Finger and Lou Sayre Schwartz. An anti-Batman and leader of a gang of moth-themed cronies who all wore moth costumes, drove a mothmobile, and operated out of a moth mansion. Too bad they weren't owls. Yeah, considering that bats eat moths, so that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) And now we got Cobra. This is uh, K-O-B-R-A. Jeffrey Franklin Burr first appeared in Cobra Number 1, March 1976, and was created by Martin Pascoe, Jack Kirby, Steve Sherman, and Pablo Marcos. Originally planned to star in a Jack Kirby-written and drawn series called King Cobra. However, by the time DC actually got around to publishing it, the King was back at Marvel. Jack had written and drawn the one issue. Writer Martin Pascoe took the gig a year later and didn't really dig the concept. He referred to it as a throwaway idea and erased Kirby's dialogue and had Pablo Marcos redraw some of the art. The title would run seven issues from February 1976 to April 1977. Cobra's an international terrorist and cult leader, constantly at odds with his twin brother, Jason. Uh, Lady Lunar, Stacy Macklin first appeared in Wonder Woman 252. This is February 196, I'm sorry, 1979, by Jaxie Harris and Jose Delpo, where she was one of Diana Prince's fellow astronaut trainees. Yes, Wonder Woman was training to be an astronaut. Oh my gosh. Uh, 
<laughs> she was exposed to strange cosmic energies that gave her the powers of gravity manipulation and hypnosis and ultimately turned her into the villainous villainous Lady Lunar. <laughs> that good one, Chris. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Lightning Lord. This is Mech Renz. First appeared in Superman number 147. August 1961 cover by Jerry Siegel and Kurt Swan, founding member of the Legion of Supervillains, hailing from the planet Wineth, the older brother of Lightning Lad and Lass, who was scornful towards them because he didn't have a twin of his own. So sad. Yeah. Uh, we got the Lord of Time, time traveler Epic, E-P-O-C-H, beamed in during Justice League of America number 10. This is March 1962 cover by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. He gained his powers in 1 billion A.D. and started his career capturing criminals and sending them to a limbo known as Time Point, which is basically a non-Kryptonian Kryptonian phantom zone. Uh, he would battle the Justice League and later on the Karate Kid. Not relevant, but worth mentioning for the hell of it. The Lord of Time was killed during 1997's JLA Wildcats <laughs> Prestige Format Special, because why not? I can't. I can only imagine all of the Lord of Time fans that just turned away from comics. They were like, forget <laughs> it. You've gone too Grifter? far. Grifter killing him? <laughs> no, no, not Grifter. No, <laughs> not worth shining the Lord of Time shoes. Uh, Matter Master. This is Mark Mandrills. He's been wielding his Matter Mastering wand since Brave and the Bold, number 35. April 1965 cover by Gardner Fox and Joe Kubert. And uh, that's pretty much it. He has a wand that allows him to master matter. (laughs) All right, okay. He's also been a member of both the Injustice Society and the Secret Society of Supervillains. Quite a pedigree. We got the Mirror Master. Sam Scudder first appeared in Flash number 105, uh, March 1959, by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Sam was a common criminal who stumbled into a hall of mirrors at an amusement park and somehow figured out how to walk into and out of mirrors everywhere. And he, he, he figured it out. He just figured it out. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was whatever. <laughs> Uh, one of my very favorites, Mr. Mind. This cute little caterpillar first appeared in Captain Marvel Adventures number 26 by August, 19, uh, August 1943 cover by Otto Binder and C.C. Beck. He's a super smart worm from another planet, or possibly another dimension, and he leads the Monster Society of Evil. He's got a cute little pair of glasses and yeah. a radio. He's sort, he's sort of like, <laughs> almost like a Disney character, but he's a he's an evil worm. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> And until uh, what was it, fifty-two, where they changed him into like some, like a, like a kaiju beast or something. Uh, they did. They did. They changed him later on. But then, by the time this came back, when DC picked it up, they brought him back to the uh, original right. wormy face. We got the Overmaster. First appearance, Justice League of America, 233, December 1984, cover date by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton. As an alien entity who created the cadre, a team set to test humanity's fitness and capacity for inhabiting the Earth. Other members included Crowbar, Fastball, Nightfall, Shatterfist, and Star Shrike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds uh, like an image comic. Yeah, right? it really does. I was like, are you sure this is 85? Right. Blood fist, yeah. blood shrike, blood ball. <laughs> what if shike? You know, it's not, it's not even a thing. Uh, Pied Piper, this is Hartley Rathaway, first showed up in The Flash number 106, May 1959, by John Broom and Carmen Infantino. Born deaf, Hartley was able to hear thanks to a set of experimental implants. He became obsessed with sound and eventually learned to hypnotize hypnotize people with song. He'd become more important to uh, Flash as an ally after uh, That's crisis. right. He would. We got Punch and Julie. 
They first appeared in Charlton's Captain Adam the Brady Five, his March 1967. They're a pair of Coney Island puppeteers who discovered a chest full of bizarre otherworldly items with which they could commit crimes. Their names are obviously a play on Punch and Judy, the popular and violent puppet duo. Well, as popular as a puppet duo might be, anyway. <laughs> uh, their show dates back to as early as 196. I'm sorry, 1662 in England. Yeah, that's when puppet shows were big, right there. <laughs> yep. Uh, Quake Master Robert Coleman first appeared in DC Special Number 28, Earth-Shattering Disasters, July 1977 cover, and was created by Bob Rosakis and John Kalman. He was an architect, just not a very good one. An apartment complex he designed was destroyed by a hurricane. As revenge, he designs a super jackhammer and creates earthquakes around Gotham City. Revenge on himself for being a crummy architect? Is that what it was? The only buildings that would be damaged in this spree are the ones he designed. Well, <laughs> uh, we got Queen Bee. Zazala is the leader of the Hive World Coral. Uh, she first appeared in Justice League of America number 23, November 1963 cover, and was created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. She formed an anti-Justice League to do battle with the real Justice League. Hey. Her anti-Justice League included Brainiac, Clayface, the Matt Hagen version, Hoppy, Merlin the Archer, Ocean Master, Sinestro, Kronos, and Gorilla Grodd, and they operated out of an adorable beehive-shaped satellite. Uh, she would later join Lex Luthor's secret society of supervillains, and perhaps most appropriately, Hive. Yeah, they should have let her run the place, frankly. Yes. Uh, Scarecrow, this is Jonathan Crane. He's been trying in vain to scare the bejesus out of us since Batman number 189, February 1967, by Gardner Fox and Sheldon Moldoff. He grew up obsessed with fear and took to chasing birds because he liked the sight of them panicking. Studied psychology with a focus on, you guessed it, fear. He uses things like fear toxins to induce fear uh, in his victims, and he also dresses up like a scarecrow. Yeah, there's that, too. Right. Uh, we got the Shadow Thief. Carl Sands first appeared in The Brave and the Bold, number 36, July 1961 cover, and was created by Gardner Fox and Joe Cubitt. Uh, he was a small-time crook who became obsessed with shadows. And one time, he somehow accidentally opened a portal into the shadow realm of Zarapion. Zarapion, one of them. Uh, either, physical... either is acceptable. Either pronunciation sure. is fine. <laughs> you know, his physical body would remain there while his, quote, living shadow would return to Earth to annoy Hawkman and Hawkgirl. <laughs> yeah, the Shaggy Man first appeared in Justice League of America number 45, June 1966, created by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. He's a synthetic being created from plast alloy by Professor Andrew Zagarian. He's almost immortal, but he's as, well, as immortal as a synthetic being can be. Uh, he's able to regenerate his body parts, so hard to keep a good shaggy man down. He basically looks it's like true. a Sasquatch. That's what he is. Yeah, yeah, he does. We got the shock. Karshan has been bugging Green Lantern since issue 24 of his second volume in October 1963. He was created by John Broom and Gil Kane. He was originally just a regular old tiger shark. <laughs> However, after being pelted with the fallout of an experimental atomic blast, he experienced millions of years of evolution in mere moments. He would take on the alias T.S. Smith. The T.S. naturally stands for tiger shark. Amazing. Silver <laughs> Ghosts. This is Earth X's Raphael Van Zant. First appeared in Freedom Fighters No. 1, April 1976 cover, and was created by Jerry Conway, Martin Pasco, and Rick Estrada. 
He has the power to transmute objects into silver and had aspirations of taking over Manhattan Island with no more than his wits and a strong man named King Samson. Mm-hmm. Star Sapphire. Carol Ferris first appeared in Showcase Number 22. It was October 1959 by John Broom and Gil Kane. She runs Ferris Aircraft and is the on-again, off-again love interest of Hal Jordan. She's got the hots for Hal, but won't date him because he works for her. And she really thinks Green Lantern's a stud, too. Uh, that always uh, she was, the way, you know. Isn't it? Isn't that she was chosen by the Zamorans to become their queen? She didn't want to leave Earth and her beloved Green Lantern. So yeah, the Zamorans fixed that by brainwashing her into believing Green Lantern is her enemy. She'd later go by the name Predator, but that's not really something we want to delve into too much. But suffice it to say, Carol Ferris was one of the Predator's first victims. The Predator is the Star Sapphire entity, right? Uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> whatever it is. but so, so her being revealed to be the Predator made very little sense, but yeah. that, that's comics for you. It is. Uh, Starro, Starro the Conqueror, first did whatever giant space starfish do. Way back in Brave and the Bold number 28, this is March 1960, an issue where absolutely nothing else happened. <laughs> right. By uh, Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Uh, he's a giant space starfish that can asexually generate clones, which can and will latch onto the face of folks and control their minds. Yeah. In case you don't know people, this is the debut of the Justice League of America yes. he's talking about. <laughs> uh, there's cyanides. Spelled S-Y-O-N-I-D-E Nobody knows or probably cares What Cyanide's real name is But he first appeared in Black Lightning Number 3 July 1977 Created by Tony Isabella and Trevor Von Eden He's a flamboyant crook Who wields an electrified whip And that's all we need to know Definitely all I want to know Yes, that's all the people need to know (laughs) We got T.O. Morrow Thomas Oscar Morrow has been dazzling people with his clever name since Flash number 143. This is back in March 1964 cover. He was created by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. He was a man obsessed. All these villains are obsessed with something. He's obsessed with studying the future and was ultimately partially responsible, along with Professor Ivo, for the creation of the android Red Tornado, along with a bunch of other red robots. I thought Kilowog made the rocket reds. No, not them. Those are real people. Oh. We're talking robots like Red Inferno, Red Torpedo, Red Volcano, and Tomorrow Woman. Well, she doesn't count, though. That's post-crisis. Good thing. But he got to it eventually. Uh, <laughs> the Trickster, James Jesse, or Giovanni Giuseppe, if you're from the old country, has been turning tricks since Flash number 113, July 1960 cover, and was created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. He was born into a circus troupe called the Flying Jessies. Unfortunately, he was scared of heights. Necessity being the mother of invention, James invented air walker shoes to get over his acrophobia. I hear those are popular with skateboarders, too. That's right. They're like wheelies. He would join up with Flash's rogues gallery and terrorize the speedster family for years to come. We got one member of the Brotherhood of Evil that we haven't met yet, and that's Hoongan. Jean-Louis Drew first appeared in New Teen Titans number 14, December 1981 cover by Marvin George. He's a Haitian-born computer scientist who became a Hungan, or voodoo master, after observing one aid his dying father. Since this is the 1980s, he wields an electronic needle and a computerized voodoo doll. That's right. It's like the, uh, it's like <laughs> the football game, right? The electronic yep. football game. Anyway, uh, two members of the Fatal Five we haven't met yet. There's Emerald Empress. 
This is Sarya, first appeared in Adventure Comics number 352, January 1967, cover by Jim Shooter, Kurt Swan, and George Klein. Hailing from the planet Venegar, the soil there must taste acidic as hell, uh, she was part of the team assembled by Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes to combat the Sun Eater. And the other one is Mono. This hand of hand of fate five first <laughs> appeared aha, in Adventure Comics three fifty two by Shooter Swan and Klein. The same the same issue there. Yeah. Uh, he hails from the horribly polluted planet Angtu and must wear an environmental suit to breathe on other planets. Yeah, we got another team. This is Masters of Disaster. First appeared in Batman and the Outsiders number 9, April 1984 cover, and actually all members of the team we're about to introduce made their appearance in that very issue, and they were created by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. This is a team of mercenaries that includes Cold Snap. This is Daryl, last name unknown, has Iceman's powers. If you're familiar with Marvel's Iceman, you know the deal, and he's romantically linked to... Heatstroke. This is Joanne, last name unknown, unknown has uh, Firestar's powers. You know, that's Spider-Man's other amazing thing. Right. Uh, her, rom- her romance with Cold Snap is one that is tragically not meant to be due to their conflicting powers. Oh, uh, it's like fire and ice. Mm-hmm. There's New Wave. He's the leader of the Masters of Disasters. Rebecca Becky Jones looks pretty much exactly as you might expect from someone named New Wave. She has the power of hydrokinesis. Her sister is former villain turned outsider turned college freshman Wendy Windfall Jones. And we met her a couple episodes ago. And then we got Shakedown. He's got the power to emit powerful vibration frequencies and talks with a stutter. Now, if you recall, we were actually talking about a comic book here. And all Oh these, yeah, that's right. That's right. These uh, villains we just mentioned are all assembled on Brainiac's ship. Uh, Lex and Brainiac assembled them because they believe the crisis is over. And now it's time to pillage. Alexei Luther acts up and says he's smarter than Lex, so Brainiac incinerates him on the spot. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> while Lex goes over a plan with the assembled villains, we cut over to another spaceship. This is opposite Brainiac's ship with Earth between them. It's a Tamaranian ship, and Starfire is being beamed aboard with two other Teen Titan pals. Well, those are being Nightwing and Jericho. Uh, this follows up on events from New Teen Titans number 14. I think this is uh, volume two, the, the Baxter run there. Yeah. Uh, Starfire is needed for some secret Tamaranian business about which we don't know yet. But, ever silent, Jericho listens and worries. That ever worrying, ever silent Jericho. <laughs> it's what uh, he do. Back on Earth, everything seems hunky dory, except for this warp zone business where time and space are getting all wacky downtown Manhattan. They got biplanes flying next to spaceships, dinosaurs mingling with guys in powdered wigs. It's just chaos out there. Our DCU reporters are out covering this warp zone. I think there's only one that we have not met yet. That's Tony Young. Who first appeared in Green Lantern number 176, May 1984 cover by Len Wein and Dave Gibbons. She's a reporter for KLAQ TV covering the Green Lantern beat. Uh, Jack Ryder, aka the Creeper, is also here, but he's in his reporter capacity. Yeah, for, for some silly reason, Wonder Girl wants to find her new <laughs> husband, Terry Law. Uh, he's luckily somewhere in the warp zone. <laughs> Unfortunately, Firehawk lends a hand. Chris, Chris uh, doesn't like Terry Long. I don't know if you people know that yet. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> me and him, me and him go way back. Uh, on the same Earth, but in the days of World War II, Sergeant Rock and the Easy Company see a flash of energy streak across the sky. It's happening in every time period on all three Earths, and somehow things are being imperceptibly changed, uh, imperceivable to the people on those Earths. That is, we're we're seeing it just fine. Yeah, and it's even being narrated for us. So that it Bonus. Helps, helps even more. <laughs> Looks like the characters in Earth Four that would be our Charlton heroes. They have been usurped by Lex and Brainiac's mad plan. On Earth One, Alexander Luther, Lila, and Pariah are addressing the United Nations. Pariah says that while linking of different Earths is unusual, it's clearly not dangerous because he hasn't been spirited away to observe some horrible cataclysm and, you know, cry about it. Just then, Pariah is spirited away to observe some horrible cataclysm, <laughs> which the UN finds that highly irregular. They'll probably probably vote to censure this action in the coming months or years. Yeah, well, there'll be some sort of a committee, I assume, and a lot of fact finding. But they'll get they'll they'll say something in ten years. Push some papers. Yeah. Right. Uh, a hologram of a hologram of Brainiac's head appears above the United Nations, and he explains that they've captured Earths four, S, and X, while most heroes were on Earths one and two. Then he introduces the headliner, Lex Luthor. Uh, he dem his demands are simple: surrender, or he'll destroy the five remaining Earths. It's pretty cut and dry. Yep. Uh, Clark Kent, who is there in his reporter's capacity, changes into Superman and takes off. Jack Ryder also turns into the Creeper and hops away somewhere, laughing loudly, as as per usual. That's pretty much all he ever does. So that's what he does. He, <laughs> he, 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 they get to really play with the lettering. There. Uh, back in 1917, Balloon Buster observes that flash of energy in the sky seen everywhere else. He hops in his biplane and flies off. Muttering homespun fa homespun phases, homespun phrases. There you go. There we go. <laughs> Stephen Savage, the balloon buster, first appeared in All American Men of War number 112, his December 1965 cover date by Robert Kaniger and Russ Heath. He was raised in Wyoming. Steve joins the U.S. Army Air Corps at the outset of World War One. He defies orders to shoot down several German hot air balloons, and so gets the nickname Balloon Buster. Now, several heroes are trying to break through the barrier between Earths 2 and 4 and failing. In Blue Valley on Earth 1, Wally West is visited by Lila and Jay Garrick, fla the, that Flash, the Golden Age Flash. They need him per the Monitor's tapes, so he comes out of retirement. Wally West, a.k.a. Kid Flash, first appeared in The Flash number 110, December 1959 cover, by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. This is Iris West's nephew, Wally, and he visits the Central City Police Department one day, where the same freak accident that turned Barry Allen into the Flash is repeated. The laziest origin for a hero ever. Yes. Uh, he even wears a miniature version of the Flash's costume at first, but later he gets a yellow suit that lets a, that has a hole for his hair to fly free, so you can tell he's different. Uh, Wally and Jay are just north of the warp zone in Earth-1, constructing a gigantic cosmic treadmill. It's worth mentioning, we suppose, our namesake debuted in Flash number 125, December 1961 cover by Broom and Infantino. It's a treadmill that allows speedsters to travel back and forth through time, cross dimensions, uh, you know, probably through the Arby's drive-thru as well. Yeah, what can it do, I'll tell you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, now, this version of the treadmill is supersized and has platforms for batches of heroes to hang out on, including some 
we haven't met yet. (laughs) Such as Mento. Uh, Steve Dayton first appeared in Doom Patrol number 91, November 1964, by Arnold Drake and Bruno Primiani. One of the world's richest men, he built a special helmet to heighten his telekinetic powers uh, in order to impress Rita Farr, a.k.a. Elastigirl of the Doom Patrol. Uh, They would eventually marry and adopt Beast Boy. You know, didn't we mention him, though, actually? I'm remembering that he met with John Constantine, or I don't know, I can't remember. That was in a tie-in, I think. Okay, maybe that. Maybe we never did a bio. It, it's, yeah. it's tough to keep it straight, folks. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's also Negative Woman. This is Valentina Vostok. First came on the scene in Showcase number 94, August 1977 cover, by Paul Kupperberg and Joe Staten. She was a member of the Soviet Air Force who stole a plane in order to defect to the United States. On her way, she crashed in the same location that the original Doom Patrol were exploded and was imbued with the same negative energy spirit thing that Larry Trainer had been, and she also was wrapped up like a mummy. Yes. We got Hawk. That's the other half of Hawk and Dove. This is Hank Hall, who debuted in Showcase number 75. This is June 1968 cover by Steve Ditko and Steve Skates. He's Don Hall's brother, and he's the, the one who really likes war. Yeah, we, we did a longer bio when we saw Dove, but for some reason we just didn't see Hawk in that panel, He wasn't so there. <laughs> it was weird, but yeah, I figured he had to be nearby. Uh, and Mara, she first appeared in Aquaman number 11, September 1963 cover by Jack Miller and Nick Cardi. Fleeing problems in Dimension Aqua, Meryl settles down with Aquaman and becomes the Queen of Atlantis. That's a, that's a, that's a good way to go. Right. <laughs> I'm going to settle down and become Queen. Um, now using Dimension the... Aqua, whatever was going on there, I don't care at all. <laughs> using the cosmic treadmill, the assembled heroes have broken through uh, Brainiac and Lex Luthor's defenses, as anticipated by Brainiac, because he's smart. Uh, Brainiac predicts 60% losses on their side, which Lex finds acceptable. Uh, he figures that this should wear out the superheroes enough to be picked off. And in any case, they can always destroy their Earths and move on to conquer other planets. Uh, in the shadows, however, someone is lurking and laughing. It's Simon. You could, yeah, he, he stayed behind. Let's not draw it out. Yeah, Puss Simon, exactly. <laughs> uh, on Earth 4, things are playing out just as predicted by Brainiac. But Tula is killed by Chemo. Uh, he spills a bunch of chemicals into the ocean, and she sucks some up, I guess. <clears throat> On Earth-S, Staros and Estro and Plasmus are getting a whooping. In fact, it looks like Vibe takes out Plasmus entirely. That's in, embarrassing. In retaliation, though, Warp teleports Steel to a place from where he shall never return. Eventually, the villains get the upper hand on this Earth as well. Earth-X is also under villain's control, mainly thanks to Poison Ivy and the Floronic Man. But then a batch of batch of heroes show up to do battle, and Dr. Phosphorus immolates Golden Age Hawkman entirely. The battle continues on each Earth, and Lex notes the sides seem evenly matched. But that's okay, he will still honor his partnership with Brainiac, who is sputtering and smoking like an old toaster right now. <laughs> Brainiac explodes thanks to Poseidon, who, who has now turned his brainy sights on Lex Luthor. And that's the end of that issue, but we do have crossover issues that, uh, like we mentioned before, are arranged per comicbookreadingorders.com. We're going to start with Justice League of America, number 245, December 1985, cover by Jerry Conway and Luke McDonnell. We see what happens to Steel after he is warped away in Crisis number 9. He goes one billion years into the future and falls in love before being zapped back to present Earth-1 universe. (laughs) 
I wonder if he meets the the time whatever is <laughs> the, the Lord of Time. The Lord of Time, or maybe <laughs> what about uh, Captain Comet? Right? Isn't he a mutant yeah. from a, <laughs> supposed to be born a million years from now? Some crazy thing. Uh, Fury of Firestorm, number forty-two, December nineteen eighty-five, cover by Jerry Conway and Raphael Kayanen. Kayanen. I could never pronounce it. Close enough. Uh, we, we, you know, we do. We hurt people's names. What can you do? Uh, sure. Firehawk and Wonder Girl meet and get on like gangbusters while dealing with the temporal anomalies that are wrecking Earth One over at the Warp Zone. They also run into Tomahawk, who helps them fight against the British in the Revolutionary War. That's nice. Hmm. We got New Teen Titans, Volume Two, Number Thirteen, October 1985, cover by Moth Wolfman and Eduardo Barreto. Harbinger grabs Cyborg back to the Monitor Satellite. And in time, the rest of the team are pulled back into action as well. Yeah, we're going to need to regroup soon, because as you can tell, those three Earths are on the ropes, boys. The villains have taken mm-hmm. over. Then we're going to go right into Crisis on Infinite Earths number 10. Go ahead, Chris. Yes, we got to—the the title is Death at the Dawn of Time. The cover promises— Sleeping. No, no, not sleeping. No, the, <laughs> the Spectre versus the Anti-Monitor. And that's pretty much what we see there. Basically. <laughs> uh, now, at the bottom of every page in this issue, except for the very last one, is a strip titled The Monitor Tapes by Wolfman and Perez. It's rendered in black and white with Lila narrating in a typeset caption running below the strip. It's Lila going over the Monitor's final records, recalling what, what has happened and some of his prophecies that fill in some of the blanks that we have in the ongoing story. Maybe yeah. where specific characters, what they're doing. Yeah, it, it doesn't tell us all that much that we don't already know. And it's it's not necessary to the main story. So we're not going to spend you know any more time on it. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't listen past the end of the show to hear Lila herself narrating the tapes. Don't do that. Certainly so, not. Yeah. Don't do that at all. Uh, now, the main story picks up at the end of the last issue. But Simon is menacing Luther with his mind power. But Brainiac has constructed a new body. And he fires a bolt right through Simon's visible brain. At the end. Bum, bum, bum. Brainiac and Luther's plan continues unabated. On Earth 1, at the dawn of mankind, Anthro, our old friend, sees the same flash of red in the sky seen everywhere else. Uh, while Earth 4 seems consumed by this red smoke. And yeah. Chemo stands before an ocean boiling with his toxic waste. Uh, negative woman binds chemo in her uh, uh, negative essence. Yeah, like a, a negative ribbon. I don't know what that would call sure. that. <laughs> and then uh, ultimately shatters him to pieces. Uh, Aqualad dives deeper into the ocean with Tula's lifeless body in his arms in hopes that he can save her. She's dead, dude. I think you got to yeah. accept it. Uh, Black Adam is also topside on Earth 4. A lot of stuff happening on Earth 4 here. Yeah. Socking some heroes. So Cole shows up and turns him completely to crystal. Robot Man wants to shatter him, but Dove stops him with his persuasive pacifism. Celsius is also gaining the upper hand on the villains, and the tide seems to be turning. Over on Earth-S, everything is still frozen solid, and the Marvel family has been subdued. Dr. Savannah's wearing a nice parka, which I like that. It's adorable, yeah. Hector Hammond, manning a bank of computers with T.O. Morrow, warns that the heroes are on their way. Have we not met this guy? I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Hector first appeared in Green Lantern number five, March April nineteen sixty one cover, by John Broom and Gil Kane. Hammond discovers and ultimately exposes himself to a meteorite that speeds up evolution, greatly expanding his brain and giving him a comically oversized head. Yes, you'll know him if you see him. 
Um, in fact, there's a few villain here, villains here we haven't uh, been officially introduced to. Let's start with another Doctor. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Cyber first appeared in Wonder Woman number 179. This is the November through December 1968 issue by Denny O'Neill and Mike Sikowski. An international criminal mastermind, Doctor Cyber was Wonder Woman's foil during that brief time that she lost her powers and became the very mod Diana Prince secret agent. I believe his power was to keep asking her age, sex, and location, right? When that would ASL, ASL, yeah. ASL. Uh, winner of the Skeletor lookalike contest, Dr. Destiny, debuted in the Justice League of America number 5, June 1961 cover, by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. He's a criminal genius named John D. that used impossible devices to combat the Justice League. Mm-hmm. Death Bolt first appeared in All Star Squadron number 21. This is May 1983 cover by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. Wanted for murder, Jake Simmons fled police in a stolen biplane that is struck by lightning and downed in Meteor Crater, Arizona. Uh, the ultra-humanite finds him and performs experiments to turn him into a human battery that can fire lightning from his hands. And the three-eyed, fin-head Despero showed up for the first time in Justice League of America number 1, October 1960, by Fox and Sikowski. He's a tyrant from outer space that fights against the Justice League, primarily because they keep beating him. That really is mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And he likes uh, chess. Yes, right, he does. He's, he's a big <laughs> manipulator. Uh, and some heroes show up and start wrecking shop over here on Earth-S, right? That's where we are. I think so. Uh, the Atom, unnoticed, <laughs> yeah, it is, un- unnoticed by the distracted villains, slips Billy Batson's gag off his face so Billy can utter the word Shazam, and he does. Hey. With Captain Marvel and Marvel Family in the game, looks like things are changing uh, to their favor on Earth-S as well. Now we're going to pop over to Earth-X, where, uh, well, the same kind of thing is happening. Mm-hmm. And we get to meet some more villains. <laughs> Let's start with the Calendar Man. First appeared for the he appeared for the first time in uh, De- Detective Comics number two fifty nine, the September nineteen fifty eight cover date by Bill Finger and Sheldon Moldoff. Julian Gregory Day, I wonder if he's related to uh, Summer Day there, uh, <laughs> is a criminal who is uh, he's really into the days of the week and the month, and so he commits crimes around them. Uh, he wears a pretty great costume with a cape made of desktop calendar pages that seem to have uh, vanished post-crisis. I, I think they couldn't get the uh, the Dave Barry quote on each page. I, I, I used to, I love it. I love that costume. I know it's so <laughs> over the top, but uh, I think that basically people don't want to keep drawing those calendar pages. But uh, that'd, that'd be what... a that'd be a bear, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's it's pretty ornate otherwise too. But anyway, I just wanted to throw throw it in there. It actually did show up. That costume showed up in the his second appearance, which was in the late seventies. So not really an often, not, you know, there might have been three appearances up to this point of the calendar, man. So not really used that often. Uh, now there's a fellow there named Dummy. This is a Golden Age villain starting out in Leading Comics number 1, December 1941, by Mort Weisinger and George Pat. He's a criminal master man that looks just like and may actually be a ventriloquist dummy. And he was, hmm. he was part of the uh, Monster Criminal Society, whatever that... Uh, the Monster Society of Evil? There you go, Monster Society of Evil. He was a member of that. Uh, the heroes start beating the snot out of these Earth-X usurpers as well. Uh, Luther's annoyed that the heroes are winning, but Brainiac points out that it still serves their master plan. Suddenly, there's a surge on Brainiac's energy detector or whatever it is. It's the Spectre, Chris's top favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he's gigantic and speaks to all five Earths at once. The Spectre first appeared in More Fun Comics number 52, February 1940, 
by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey. Hard-boiled cop Jim Corrigan is murdered by thugs, but turned away from heaven by the voice, who commands him to become an avenging spirit. And the Spectre's power set can be described as anything imaginable. <laughs> Except be interesting. Well. Um, <laughs> no, that's just my two cents. Uh, we have a new face here. We have Lord Satanus, created by Marv Wolfman and Kurt Swan. First appeared in Action Comics number 527. This is January 1982. A sorcerer from one million years into the future that made a deal with the Lord of Hell that caused him to be sent back to the 14th century. Eventually, he made it to the 20th century, whether he showed up or aged there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he also split Superman in half and sent one part back to the 14th century, so, so don't screw with this guy. I, uh, this... I just want to point out, too, sometimes we just throw these people out. It's because there's a lot of reaction panels. you got to think about this, like the Spectre's talking. <laughs> yes. And there's, like, several panels of just groups of people looking stunned. and That we've never seen yet. <laughs> Some, often there's one or two that are brand new, and this that's where Lord Satanus worked into this out of nowhere. Now, the Spectre advises that the Anti-Monitor is not dead, and in, in fact has fled to the distant past. And we mean, we mean way distant, to a time before life began. There, he plans to change history so that the universe is made only from antimatter, and matter will never, ever exist. Which I'm pretty sure is impossible, at least like according to the rules of basic language, right? I, I mean, I, yeah, I think so. I don't see how that works, but uh, you can't be anti something that doesn't exist. You can't exactly. You got to have the thing <laughs> to be, have the anti of it. But okay, uh, Spectre suggests they split into two groups: one to face the anti monitor at the dawn of creation, another to go to Oa and change history there. Brainiac makes the call to call on their forces and collaborate on this anti monitor problem, but not with the heroes. Sort of like do their own thing. Uh, all remaining heroes meet in Death Valley on Earth-1 to get down to business. Lois and Clark Kent of Earth-2 share a tender goodbye, and Superman promises he will return. Alexander Luther eavesdrops on this scene creepily, but this is important later on. The Spectre is now chatting with the heroes and insists that they can make this happen. Look, it's another new character. We actually saw one of them earlier in a little side scene, but now we see both of them. It's Space Ranger and Krill. First appeared in Showcase number 15, July 1958 cover by Edmund Hamilton, Gardner Fox, and Bob Brown. Character was created by editor Jack Schiff. Board company executive Rick Starr of the 22nd century has an alter ego as Space Ranger, whose sense of justice conveniently lands on the side of his corporation. Only his girlfriend, Myra Mason, and a little pink alien named Krill know his secret. And Krill looks kind of like a low-budget Q-Bert. Yes. If that helps anybody. Now, just before they take off, Superboy of Earth Prime shows up. Now, this is the character from DC Comics Presents number 87, November 1985, cover date, by Elliot S. Magan and Kurt Swan. This is one of the uh, crossover issues that we mentioned last episode. He wants to pitch in since his Earth is kaput. Captain Marvel reminds us, for no reason in particular, that Lady Quark still blames Pariah for the destruction of her Earth. (laughs) Before they could take off, Uncle Sam does what he does best. He delivers a rousing speech, which Lex Luthor, watching from on board Brainiac spaceship, finds corny. Because it is. Uh, Everyone takes their positions, and the folks with electricity and magnetism powers charge up a machine made from the metal men. Uh, This fires a pod billions of years into the past to intercept the anti-monitor. While Jay Garrick and Wally West run around to open a time portal, uh, we're we're guessing that this is the one that would take them to Oa, right? It has to be. I mean, they're all going to two places, so there there it is. (laughs) Maybe they're going to go to Arby's. (laughs) Um, 
Brainiac observes this, and he figures that the chances of success are slim. He shuts down his biological functions and retreats into computer mode, just in case of destruction. Fair enough. What a guy. Yeah. Uh, down in Atlantis, Aqualad finally brings Tulu's corpse to Mara and folks. Uh, they can't bring her back to life. She's not a sea monkey, so... Can't just pour salt on her. Exactly. <laughs> Aqualad's distraught, and then there's a group hug. At the dawn of time, heroes arrive to find that the Anti-Monitor was expecting them. He's got Pariah captured in the energy, energy truss, and Pariah isn't crying in this scene. What? Anti-Monitor reveals that Pariah only opened the portal to the Anti-Monitor universe, and that he specifically sent out the Anti-Monitor, the Anti-Matter that began devouring worlds and dimensions. So Pariah didn't kill Lady Quark's planet, which I know uh, we, we were both hanging on that. We were like, gosh, yeah, that matters a lot for some reason. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> they both realize this at the same time, uh, Pariah and Lady Quark's. Now they can be friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, enough exposition. It's now time for the heroes to attack, which is hilarious because the anti-monitor is like bit- bigger than all of them by a factor of 500. You see, like these little guys go like throw kicks and punches. And it's like they're nuts <laughs> like to it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a mere 10 billion years on Oa, the other heroes and villains are trying to stop Krona before he performs his experiment. But the proto guardians on the planet use mind powers to subdue most of that team. Hmm. Maldor, along with Icicle and Mirror Master, make their way to Krona's laboratory. Maldor first appeared in DC Comics Presents number 56, April 1983 cover by Paul Kupperberg and Kurt Swan. His origin is shrouded in mystery. Even Maldor doesn't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a big golden sword that can cut through anything. Now, they endeavor to destroy Krona's machine, but Krona is prepared for them. There's a great explosion taking out our three villains there. Uh, Back at the dawn of time, the Anti-Monitor is drawing energy from the assembled heroes and villains, giving him the power he needs to change the course of history. Then, the Spectre intervenes, (laughs) using the combined powers of the DCU's magicians, who've been quietly assembling in some crossovers in the background. Spectre tries to take out the Anti-Monitor, but he's still not strong enough and is subdued. Just then, Krona opens the portal to the past, and the Anti-Monitor releases a burst of antimatter at the same time, shattering everything. Oh no, where will this end up, folks? What will happen next? Well, we're going to find out right after this quick break. Introducing Casey, the tape player with personality. He rings, he rings, he talks to you. Hi, my name is Casey. Casey, it's amazing the things you can do. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are going to read Crisis on Infinite Earths number 11 right now and give it the full cosmic treadmill treatment. Uh, This book is titled Aftershock, and at the beginning of it, the world begins anew, as a caption explains. In the beginning, there were many, a multiversal infinitude, so cold and dark for so very long that even the burning light was imperceptible. But then the light grew, and the multiverse shuddered, and the darkness screamed as much in pain as in relief. Wait, so darkness can feel relief? Darkness can feel pain? I don't know. Spe- this is special, uh, you know, universe-birthing darkness. 
<laughs> For in that instant, a universe was born. A universe with mighty worlds orbiting burning suns. A universe reborn at the dawn of time. What had been many became one. We pop over to a sunny morning in Metropolis. The year is 1985. Clark Kent of Earth 2 wakes up in his apartment. He says, Uh, what a horrible dream. It was the end of everything. My Earth, Kal-El's, all those others. But it's obvious everything's the way it's always been. I'm home, and what's with the decor? Lois redo the apartment while I was... In fact, where have I been? I must have been exhausted. I can't remember anything. Hmm. Lois probably went to work and let me sleep wake. Obviously, I needed it. Sure, now you're talking aloud to nobody, just like your old self again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Clark takes a stroll down to his office at the Daily Star, which he doesn't notice is actually the WGBH News Building, formerly the Daily Planet. Yeah, he's reading that morning paper while he walks, and he's in deep in thought. Seems pretty unsafe. He walks right into his office and sits down while everyone else gawks at him curiously. Yeah, Perry White goes, Great Caesar's ghost! Who in places are you? Now, seeing Perry White, Clark of Earth 2 realizes he must be on Earth 1. Perry White chews Clark of Earth 2 out for a little while, then Clark Kent from Earth 1 appears and clears up the confusion. He goes, Ah, I heard the, the commotion. There you are. Uncle Clark? Uh, Perry White still thinks there's some shenanigans going on around here. <laughs> and so Superman of Earth-1 says, um, Sorry, Perry, this is my Uncle Clark, the one I was named after. Please, Perry, don't mind him. I uh, told him I was more than just a reporter here. I said uh, I was the editor. You understand, don't you? No, I don't, Kent. And what's more, I don't even care. Uh, their ruse having passed, the Supermen of Earths 1 and 2 meet up on the roof of the Daily Planet building. Superman 2 figures out this, this crazy dream must have been real, and he was dropped off in the wrong d dimension, which is a reasonable mistake to make. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, Superman of Earth 1 goes, I'll fly with you to New York, to the warp zone bridge between the Earths. Sooner I get home, the happier I'll be. It's been too long since I saw Lois. While flying, Earth-2 Superman advises Earth-1 Superman to settle down with the Lois Lane on his Earth. Earth-1 Superman's all like, thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when they arrive at the Washington Square Arch in New York City, there is no warp zone there. Uh, the Washington Square Arch is a marble triumphal arch built in 1892 in Washington Square Park, Greenwich Village, New York City. It was modeled by Stanford White on the Arc de Triomphe built in 1806, and Paris itself was modeled on the Arch of Titus. An earlier arch of wood and plaster was erected on the spot in 1889, and it proved so popular that Stanford White's arch went up three years later. Superman of Earth-1 asks a cop where the uh, police cordon went. The officer doesn't know what Superman's talking about. Then he notices that Superman's friend has a great costume, too. But isn't the S insignia all wrong? Hmm. hmm. The, the Superman take off flying. Yeah, Superman of Earth 2 says, he didn't know me. That means this is definitely Earth 1. Well, let's head over to Central City. I know where the Flash keeps the cosmic treadmill. That's the easiest way to get you back to your Earth. If it doesn't work, we can try one of the other 96 ways to do it. <laughs> uh, as they fly near Central City, there's a billboard that reads, Welcome to the Twin Cities Central and Keystone. Great Krypton, that doesn't make sense. I know. Keystone City is on my Earth, 
Central City is on yours. Say, I recognize that place. Jay and Joan Garrick live there. Uh, they land, and Joan is out on a balcony grilling some steaks. She knows Superman of Earth 1, but not Superman of Earth 2. Yeah, she goes, Superman, what a pleasure. And who's your older friend? You don't know me? Oh, sure, I know the costume, but I don't think we've met, have we? But if you're with Superman, you're more than welcome to stay. I got a few extra T-bones I can grill up. It looks like the price of steak has drastically changed in this reality. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Superman of Earth 2 says, huh? Jones from my Earth. Lois and I have eaten here a dozen times. Then Jay Garrick walks out of the house. I guess you two are here about the Keystone Central City problem, eh? You recognize me, Jay? You actually know me. Of course I do, Clark. I know both of you. Jay walks the Superman to a more remote corner of his backyard, where there's a secret scientific bunker. Wally West is in there working on that cosmic treadmill. Something strange for certain. I did some checking this morning. People know about Barry Allen's flesh, even remember his trial. But they say I've lived here all my life, too. I tried calling you, but your phone number doesn't exist in Metropolis. And Wally West goes, I don't understand. Which Earth are we on? I don't know, and I don't know I'll like the answer. That's a pretty bad attitude to have. My fear is that we may all be without a world. Superman of Earth 2 says, What do you mean? And Wally West informs him, The treadmill's ready. And so everyone hops on the same cosmic treadmill and starts running simultaneously. This probably takes quite a fair amount of coordination if you stop to think about it. Yeah, I know. I mean, they both... They left, both, right, left, right. Really, I mean, it's, I'm surprised <laughs> they didn't, like, rehearse it. Caption explains to us, An instant later, they are a blur. A moment more, and they vanish altogether. Alongside them, the universe becomes a solid wall of light. The light, composed of red and blues and yellows and greens, becomes an endless vision of gray, and the gray grows dark and ominous, until the space surrounding them becomes an endless expanse of black. Our four heroes are on the treadmill, Jay and Wally hanging off a dear life, and they behold the aforementioned expanse of black. Jay Garrick says, What happened? Where's our world? And Superman of Earth 2 replies, G Great Scott, there's nothing out there. No Earth 2, no universe, nothing. Jay Garrick figures out that the multiverse has compressed into one universe, and Superman suggests that they hightail it out of there. To where? Who knows? Uh, Earth 2 Superman doesn't feel compelled to skedaddle, however. No. I, I feel like I don't belong on that Earth. I belong elsewhere. I belong out here, in the void, in this nothingness. I, I see it now. Nobody remembers me because I don't have a past. Because I don't exist. Superman of Earth-1 grabs his older double by the cape and pulls him back onto the cosmic treadmill. Let me go. I belong in the dark. No, whatever's going on here, you still exist because you're real. Tangible. You belong. We can sort out the whys later. Maybe even the hows. But you're not staying in the nothingness. You're coming home. So they get all those Superman back on the treadmill and run it back to Earth-1 in the present, that is to say, in 1985, not today. Uh, the cosmic treadmill's destroyed beyond repair, conveniently. Wally suggests they assemble everyone and figure out just what the heck is going on around here. Meanwhile, 
Rip Hunter is checking into the time stream. Captain Comet notices that time has realigned itself, which I guess is the kind of thing you can just see at a glance. I don't know. <laughs> I think so. Rip, Rip Hunter goes, I see it, Captain Comet. I just don't understand. An animal man says, heck, I remember taking on the monitor with the rest of you clowns, then zap. I'm back in bed cuddling with my wife. Hey, Animal Man is here for some reason, Chris. What about that? Hey! Uh, Bernhard Buddy Baker first appeared in Strange Adventures number 180, September 14th, 1965, by Dave Wood and Carmine Infantino. Its movie stuntman Buddy Baker was too near a spaceship when it exploded, infusing him with unknown radiation. This gave him the power to adopt the abilities of any animal. Suddenly, Rip Hunter's team encounters Brainiac's spaceship floating around, but they can detect no signs of life from the ship. Captain Comet suggests the team boards the ship to check it out. It's a really weird group uh, Rip has teamed up with. We got Captain Comet, Adam Strange, Atomic Knight, Animal Man, and Dolphin. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> those the forgotten heroes? Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are. Yeah. Um, eventually, they reach the heart of this weird ship. Animal Man says, well, cut my calories and call me skinny. Brainiac! Atomic Knight goes, cut my calories? And you think Brainiac is strange? Hey, lay off my jokes. I've got a rep to maintain. And Dolphin goes, you said he was alive? I, I may be wrong. He, he looks dead to me. Back on Earth, whatever it is now, <laughs> looks like everyone's assembled at Titan's Tower. Sort of a mix of folks mingling around here from various Earths. Yeah, Captain Marvel goes, I don't understand. I tried getting back to Earth-S, but I couldn't. It doesn't exist. Uncle Sam says, Reckon that explains what happened when me and my fellow freedom fighters tried taking off for Earth-X. Ralph Dimney goes, Hey, you guys know what's going on? Lady Quark goes, It appears as though only one Earth now exists. And Pariah says, A new Earth, one which combines parts of all the others which came before. Seems everyone's <laughs> coming to this conclusion about now. Yeah, Superman of Earth 1 goes, they're all coming to that same conclusion. See? <laughs> Wonder Girl goes, Wally, did you ask us all here? What's going on? Harbinger replies, no, I brought you here. You must listen to me. It's Lila, and she's back in her Harbinger getup. I summoned you here because this new Earth is still imperiled. Uh, of course it is. Yeah. Uh, Harbinger explains there are some anomalous heroes on this new combined Earth because they were there when the universe was reborn. Meaning Superman of Earth 2, Lady Quark, Superboy of Earth Prime, and Huntress. Speaking of whom, she pipes up to say, hmm. But why are only some of us remembered? Everyone knows Flash and Green Lantern, but nobody knows Earth 2 Superman, and nobody but nobody remembers the Huntress. Well, frankly, that was the case before the crisis, too. Yeah, I awoke in Gotham City, somewhere in the park. I remembered the battle with the anti-monitor, but very little else. So I hurried home. I needed a shower and some fresh clothes. I was also incredibly hungry. She probably had to pee, too. I changed to Helena Wayne before entering my apartment building. Always protect your secret identity. Nothing was out of the ordinary. I took the elevator upstairs, took out my key as usual, and fitted it in the lock. But it didn't work. Then I noticed the name on the door. And then we can see a little bit of the name, and it's not hers. It's 
Bunza something or another. Yeah, B-U-N-D-Z-A. I, I, I really want to know the rest of that name. Bunza. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's when I first realized something was crazy. <laughs> she left to investigate and learned that there is no Helena Wayne on this earth. Dick Grayson of Earth 2 says he had a similar experience. The only Dick Grayson on this earth is 19 years old and lives in Manhattan. And uh, shouldn't he be here at Titan Tower? I would think so. I guess he's up. He's got to be on that spaceship, right? The, uh, he's got to be. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> now, uh, Earth Two Grayson found Helena Wayne crying in the Wayne family cemetery, and they found solace in the fact that they had both become non-entities. Explain that to me, Harbinger. What happened to my life? I'm flesh and blood. I exist, yet I don't exist. Harbinger replies, "It is the irony of cosmic rebirth." There are many paradoxes, and not all can be explained. Indeed, not all is known. And that's it, folks. Series is over. Thanks for reading. Woo, that yeah, was a ride. That was, that was... Hoffinger <laughs> <laughs> explains that in this new universe, a singular Earth existed where there were once many. Up until around the 18th century, all of these Earths had a shared history, but then different possibilities took them in different directions. For instance, Earth-6 had America lose the revolution against Britain. On Earth-X, America invaded and ruled England. Um, and that's all that changed on this, sir. But on this new, singular Earth, the histories of all Earths came together. America won her independence. Then came the first of the Great Wars. America and its allies won, as they did on most of the Earths. We see a shot of enemy Ace in his biplane, which is sort of incongruous to what Harbinger is saying because he was a German pilot. Yeah, but uh, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Harbinger goes on to explain that the other Earths spinning out of the World War II are, uh, they're gone now. Yeah, Uncle Sam says, but we went to Earth X. And Harbinger replies, sorry, Sam. In the Reborn universe, there never was an Earth X. Y'all can't tell me I don't remember it, I do. Only because you were there at the dawn of time before the changes were made. I love that she just calls him Sam. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he ain't her uncle, you know? Harbinger <laughs> yeah. goes on to detail some of the more pertinent changes in this reborn universe. There was one Krypton, the one of Earth One's Cal L, E L. Uh, he's the only one that made it off the planet before it exploded. We got one night in Gotham City. Thomas and Martha Wayne were gunned down in front of their son, Bruce. And, you know, this birthed the one Batman. It also seems to erase the identity of uh, Joe Chill or his benefactor, Lou Moxon. Um, People are pretty shocked and confused by this news, but they seem to be coming around to accepting this reality. Except for the Superman of Earth 2, who freaks out and flies off while hollering. Yeah, I mean, he really gets really angry and a twisted face, and he says... Some things from each world survived. Some things didn't. My Krypton never was. And though that means I shouldn't exist, I do. Only through some fluke. But my wife, my Lois, she's gone. Never was. No, this is unfair. Why was I kept alive when Lois vanished? Why did I go back in time instead of staying here, instead of entering oblivion with my wife? Sounds like a supervillain in the making. Yeah, uh, we, We've got Superman of Earth-1. He's ready to go after him, but, but Harbinger interrupts. Listen, we must bring him back. There are things he does not know. And I'm like, things that he doesn't know? Harbinger yeah. just explained everything, and I still need a few days to think about it. I mean, come on. <laughs> Superman of Earth-1 replies, 
No problem. Cal stuck by me when I needed him. I'll do anything to help him now. Does that include letting him marry this Earth's Lois? Was, is that okay? Probably not. Yeah, he won't do that. <laughs> we cut over to, uh, well, we're not sure where. Uh, looks, <laughs> it looks like all uh, rocky crags, while blood-red lightning storm darkens the sky above. Maybe this helpful caption can explain it better. There are places unknown to mortal men, places that can only exist in shadow, and only those who thrive in the dark can tread those grim pathways. Mm, uh, I still can't explain it. Whatever it is, Dead Man is there talking to Phantom Stranger while the specter is below them in some kind of inert glowing state. The Dead Man goes, uh, Phantom Stranger, what happened to the specter? Phantom Stranger says, He fought the battle and he suffered. I fear, Dead Man, that the power he possesses, the very power we need, to save our universe is to be denied us. Great. Just great. He's got to sleep things off while the whole world's literally going to blazes. Come on, Corrigan. Wake up, man. We need you. Which, it's weird because Corrigan usually puts me to sleep. But hey! Now it's Corrigan sleeping. <laughs> I can't wait till we hear the uh, Chris Spector podcast. A lot, a lot to say about the character. Uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, a hotel cleaning lady enters a room to find a dead body due to some explosion. Now, Johnny Thunder, this is the female detective one, she's on hand to discover the man is holding a metal triangle. Johnny Double is hanging out there, too, and he first appeared in Showcase number 78, November 1968 cover, created by Len Wein and Marv Wolfman. Jonathan Sebastian Johnny Double is an ex-police officer and now a down-on-his-luck private investigator working in San Francisco that uses anachronistic lingo. For instance, he describes himself as a downbeat Don Quixote in a society that frowns on windmills, a once white knight in a rusty armor searching for that last dragon to slay, the poor man's Peter Pan. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> um, Harvey Bullock is there to say he recognizes it as a weapon of one of Wonder Woman's villains, Angleman. Wow. <laughs> we almost got out of this without a bio of Angleman, <laughs> who first appeared in Wonder Woman number 70, November 1954 cover date, by Robert Kanaga and Harry G. Peter. Angleman was an unsuccessful criminal who became obsessed with crimes with unbeatable. Angles, you get it? Uh, yeah. Uh, in the Silver Age, he adopted a green and yellow costume with a Penrose triangle on it, and he could warp space and time. A uh, Penrose triangle is a triangular impossible object first created by the Swedish artist Oscar Rutsjövard in 1934. It was made popular by artist M.C. Escher, who loved that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you've ever been to a dorm room, you've probably seen it. You've seen it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Harvey Bullock first appeared in Detective Comics number 441, June 1974, cover date, by Archie Goodwin, Doug Mensch, Howard Chaikin, and Don Newton. Prior to the 1985-1986 maxi-series Crisis, uh, which is what we're talking about, Bullock is a crooked police detective under instructions from Gotham City's Mayor Hamilton Hill to sabotage Commissioner Gordon's career. He does this by pretending to be a bungling detective, Messing up various cases and embarrassing Commissioner Gordon. Gosh, it's like every DC Comics detective is standing <laughs> in this hotel room. Let's meet Angel O'Day of the private investigating team, Angel and the Ape. They first appeared in Showcase number 77, September 1968, by E. Nelson Bridwell and Bob Oxner. 
Uh, Angel O'Day manages the O'Day and Simeon detective agency with her partner, Sam Simeon. Sam is unusual in that he's also a comic book artist and a uh, talking gorilla. Right. That might be the more interesting part about him in a nutshell. We've also got Christopher Chance, a.k.a. Human Target, who first showed up in Action Comics number 419, December 1972, by Len Wein and Carmine Infantino. He's a private investigator and bodyguard who assumes the identities of clients targeted by assassins and other dangerous criminals. These last two characters, and actually the... uh, the first one I mentioned, they have name tags on, which helps. I was like, that oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, over in Salem, Massachusetts, Etrigan the Demon is having a conversation with Dr. Fate in his windowless tower. And, man, we haven't met Etrigan yet, Chris. Can you believe wow. it? He, no. first, he first appeared in The Demon Number 1, August 1972, by Jack Kirby. Uh, Merlin the Magician summoned the demon Etrigan from hell and then bonded him with Jason Blood, a member of King Arthur's Round Table. Now immortal, Jason Blood and Etrigan spend time switching places, and uh, they're pretty resentful about it. As Dr. Fate goes, You sense the disturbance, too? The vast darkness torches with the flicker of firefly light. It is him, the other one, the great black beast. Etrigan replies, I saw it! I felt it! It made my stomach sick to cross that bridge past hell, that maddening span, to feast thus on fate's mystic rhetoric. But yes, I brave it. I, the demon Etrigan! Look there, demon, the nexus of the beast. Now inside the shape of an ankh, that's that uh, Egyptian cross, if you know what I'm talking about, the loop on the top. We see ethereal footage of a girl running away from an angry mob wielding torches. That girl child, the one called Amethyst, princess of the glittering jeweled realm. They think she is the cause. Dr. Fate says they must go save the girl who was accused of being a witch and is about to be torn apart by the mob. But Dr. Occult shows up first and calms down the raging townsfolk. And hey, Dr. Occult first appeared in New Fun Comics number 6, October 1935. By Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. On New Year's Eve 1899, a cult had been rescued by a shadowy group called the Seven from ritual murder at the hands of a satanic cult. They trained him in the art of black magic and gave him a red and black disc, the symbol of Seven, which is sort of like his magic wand, but in disc form. Now suddenly, the shadow beings from earlier in the series appear on this unified Earth. Etrigan and Dr. Fate show up and are able to dispatch them pretty handily. It is the beast of the night who sets this evil free. Grinning corrupter of innocence, destroyer of the girl. Our earthy twists and burns, curses to purgatory. Anti-matter jackanape, dark universal churl. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Fate is holding off the shadow monsters when Amethyst realizes that she's been injured by one of them. I, I can't see. I can't see anything. I, I'm blind. Help me, please. Do you hear me? I'm blind. The demons destroyed your optic nerves. They, by the fates, what is it I see in you? It's it's impossible. The shadow people disperse, and Dr. Fate takes his leave with his new blind friend. Amethyst, you can no longer remain on Earth. Let Dr. Fate lead you to your fate. It awaits you in Gemworld. Over in Amethyst, Amethyst number 13, according to a helpful cat, caption right there. <laughs> uh, the sky still raged with a red thunderstorm as Superman of Earth-1 chases down his Earth-2 counterpart. 
Yeah, he says, uh, when Kara died, you stood by me. I don't know what happened to your Lois, but I'm not letting you give up any more than you let me. But she's gone, and I only exist because of some whim of fate. I, I don't belong here, Kal-El. But God help me, I don't know where I go. It seems only those of us who stood at the dawn of time remember that there ever was a multiverse. It'll take time to forget. Until then, you can crash on my couch, I'm sure is what he would say. Yeah, just, just don't drink my milk. Right. <laughs> Back at Titan's Tower, Wonder Girl is recounting what just went down on Paradise Island. They were summoned by Queen Hippolyta, the one from Earth-1. Wonder Woman of Earth-2 and her daughter Fury stand before Hippolyta, but don't recognize her, and they're very confused. As Power Girls, and she goes, Why is my Superman not remembered? But I am. If our Krypton never was, nobody should remember either of us. I do not know, Power Girl. There are still many questions that cannot be answered. Yeah, we're getting that impression more and more, aren't we? Yeah, I'm feeling we're not going to get them all answered uh, anytime <laughs> too soon. Batman, Robin, and Alexander Luther have figured out that a lot of alternate Earth versions didn't die. They have simply become erased. As Batman goes, I wanted to find out exactly who remembered there was ever more than one Earth. I found Lex Luthor in his prison cell. Uh, we see this unfold in a flashback. Uh, Lex Luthor says, What do you want, Batman? I want to thank you for helping us defeat the Anti-Monitor. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Oh, I see. You're trying to make it seem like I'd work with you costume creeps. You think that would ruin my rep here, right? Well, forget it, masked man. Nothing can make Lex Luthor help the likes of you. Back to the present day at Titan's Tower, Alexander Luthor goes, Luthor knew nothing. That meant none of the villains remembered fighting alongside us. Beast Boy looks out the window and notices the horrible red weather that now encircles the world, and it's bringing shadow demons with it. Even on Gorilla City, where Sam Simeon, that was the fella from Angel and the Ape, and Detective Chip are hanging out for some reason. Detective Chimp swung into the world in Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog, number 4, July-August 1952 cover, by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. Bobo, the smoking chimpanzee, helps the local sheriff as a station mascot. Uh, he's also a member of Mensa, so he actually winds up helping helping a lot. That's great. <laughs> Solovar is gravely injured, but no one, including Solovar, remembers him being wounded in Crisis on Infinite Earths number three. Uh, while in Peru, things look no better for Cave Cawson and his crew of Spelunkas. Cave Cawson first appeared in Brave and the Bold number 31. This August 1960 cover by France Heron and Bruno Primiani. Uh, he had a lot of adventures beneath Earth's surface, joined by Bulldozer Smith, Johnny Blake, and Christy Madison. Cave is radioing his findings below to Prof, Prof Haley of the Challenges of the Unknown, who is up above and monitoring from a computer bank. We're tracking those strange vibrations you fellas picked up. Wait a second. Something's glowing up ahead. Yeah, something's there, all right. They're picking up a wind-like noise. Whatever it is, I think we... Oh, oh my God, Prof, I've, I've never seen anything like it. It's pure energy, and it's blowing all our instruments right off the scale. Get in touch with Titan's Tower. They're waiting for this. The storm rages worse and worse everywhere, and now Pariah is starting to vanish again. Uh, he's going to start crying again soon, I just know uh, it. time now, he says, <laughs> I, I feel the tug of evil again, pulling at me. But I'm not disappearing. Lord, it hurts. So cold. So very cold. Batman notices something's happening to Alexander Luther. 
The antimatter effect is taking over Alex's body again. Uh, that would probably be what he noticed. Hmm. And a caption says, Above the earth, in the scarlet skies, the universe seems to open. The yawning maw stares hungrily at the blue-gray gro- globe which floats before it. The earth shakes and protests and fights and screams, desperately trying to hold on to its space, to lay claim to its orbit. But it fails. Suddenly, it is God, swallowed whole, a cosmic Jonah lost to some interuniversal whale. And the supermen of Earth's one and two, standing on a rooftop, can tell something's changed. We're no longer in the positive matter universe. Great Krypton, the Earth shifted into another universe. Great Scott, Kal-El, look. And then overlaid on a panel of rock-strewn outer space is a red outline of the anti-monitor's head. And it speaks. Welcome to my universe. Welcome to your doom. Just like the end of Altered Beast, right? Welcome to your doom. <laughs> yes. You know, that's what I imagine. <laughs> no, that ends issue 11. Right. But we got crossovers. Of course. Uh, Amethyst 13, February 1986, cover date by Robert Lauren Fleming, Keith Giffen, and Ernie Colon. Cologne or Colon? Cologne. Cologne. Let's do that. Uh, special guest star Dr. Fate carries a bruised and battered and probably blinded Amethyst home <laughs> from crisis. I have a feeling even if his last name was Colon, he would have changed it to Cologne. I have a feeling. I would imagine. Yeah, he put the little accent on it. Right. <laughs> Uh, then Green Lantern number 196 of 197. This is January, February 96, 86 cover dates uh, by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. On the orders of the Guardians, Guy Gardner rounds up the Shark, Hector Hammond, Sonar, Throttle, Blindside, and Goldface to destroy the Anti Monitor's birthplace, one of the moons of Quard. Hal Dorden is deputized to help Guy in this case. Judge Stewart, however, follows the other Guardians that think destroying this moon could be problematic. By the end of the issue, he teams up with Sinestro to stop the destruction of Quartz Moon. Mm. Look at that, and that will figure in after Crisis pretty prominently in the Green Lantern books, but that's it. We're now one issue away from finding out how Crisis (laughs) of Infinite Earths ends, and I have a feeling it's not with the complete destruction of the DC Universe, but uh, we're sure to see some changes. Uh, but if you have any questions, comments, if you think we've missed any villains in our rambling list of <laughs> bios or anything you want to tell us about uh, your feelings about Crisis, you can write to us over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-Mill history. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-Mill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You find our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and I tell you every week to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, and you've really just been ping-ponging around the uh, years lately, I'll tell you. Bebopping and scat. You really have. It's been silver, bronze, whatever the new ages are called, digital age, whatever you want to <laughs> call it. Uh, I mean, you, you did the, you're doing the... Uh, Superboy books I saw recently, right? You did the post-death of Superman stuff? Yep, I did the uh, the Chromium Age <laughs> Superboy uh, today, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I haven't been able to give it the full attention I usually like to give it. I did I did read one this week, and I can't remember what the, what the heck even one it was, but <laughs> that's okay. You can go there and just read a whole bunch of them anytime you like. I'm telling you, they're very good, very well uh, 
put together, very entertaining, and they've got ads and pictures. Oh, it's a, it's a party over there, and it'll <laughs> save you a quarter, you know. So that's nice. It will. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Oh, that's it. You got some Spectre? Is that what it is? <laughs> he passed before my eyes. Yeah, you got sleepy, saw some Spectre. <laughs> well, I don't want to keep it too long, so until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill, the monitors, tapesingly. End the podcast now. See ya. Many times I tried to tell you, many times I cried alone. Always I'm surprised how well you cut my feelings to the bone. Don't wanna leave you really. I've invested too much time to give you up that easy. Do the doubts that complicate your mind. Perhaps it's not as difficult to believe as I had thought. The Monitor had predicted his own death. Now I learn he transferred his files to Earth before they could be lost. All his years of work must not be in vain. He observed all worlds and all times, recording information on those with special powers. He is dead now. I must continue his files with what has occurred since the crisis began. Monitor. Please help me to understand why I must do this. How many universes perished? How many survived? Pariah lived when millions of his people died. So did Lady Quark and Alexander Luther. And the boy. From Earth Prime as they called it. He survived. Where has he gone? How many worlds have perished, Monitor? Mibranu, a planet of sentient methane gas, perhaps the most peaceful in any universe, died while the murderous Caladrain armies survived to destroy again. Is that justice, Monitor? No planet has been spared, but each has reacted differently. Thanagar, preparing for war, saw the crisis as an invasion. Not the antimatter universe, but from within. Five thousand Thanagarians died in the mad rioting. In the 30th century, the Anti-Monitor destroyed Tacron Galtos, the prison planet, into a universe already doomed were unleashed the most evil of evils. The Legion of Superheroes couldn't stop them. Nobody could. Is that justice? Validus, the Persuader, Dr. Regulus, Lightning Lord, how many others survived? How many worlds did they destroy before they were brought to Brainiac's starship? They say they're going to help us, but whose side are they really on? Some fought to destroy, but there were others who only wished to help. One was called Starman, and he had struggled to build an empire. Now he's dead, 
sacrificed buying precious time so his subjects could live on in peace. In a binary star system near Vega, the planet Karek was swept into chaos. Six different dimensional versions of Karek were violently compressed into one by the mad goddess Zal. Nimbus, the Omega Man, lay trapped between them. Not all the heroes died. In the year 2185, Tommy Tomorrow of the Planeteers commanded an expedition to save the NGC 2683, a star system threatened by the antimatter cloud. Because of him, the population of 16 worlds will survive. On the planet Adon, five youths known as the Forever People used their powers to protect their adopted world from destruction. Across the dimensions, their pursuer, Darkseid the Destroyer, cloaked only Apocalypse from harm. One dimension saved, but another was not so lucky. On Gemworld, the Citadel of Sapphire was destroyed, people torn and desperate. Only the Earth Girl, Amy Winston, who was also their Princess Amethyst, could lead them to triumph. No dimension is safe, Monitor. Even the golden halls of Olympus itself were bloodied in battle against the forces your brother unleashed. Three of the gods perished, two more are dying. Whoever destroys the gods must be mad. The crisis has been universal, striking all worlds in all times. But now it comes to Earth, the nexus point you called it. Monitor, my home world. It suffered so much already. It seems so unfair that the suffering has to continue. He was called Immortal Man, and he died a thousand deaths. Yet with each death, he was reborn, though, though with a new and different body. But in helping to save his world, Immortal Man was eliminated from all existence. I had never thought about immortality before, but I'm forced to now. Immortal Man's body recreated itself. So did the body of Alec Holland, now the Swamp Thing. But he's not like the immortal man. He can't die. Can he? I saw his body completely destroyed by the wave of antimatter. But his essence lived, merging with the green. With whatever life his planet possessed, he took root and form. Swamp Thing's body died, but he still lived. Hawkman of Earth 2 was also an immortal, the reincarnation of Khufu, an Egyptian prince. But now this valiant hero is dying, wounded in the villain war. Monitor, I pray there's still life for him in his godson's land of Fethera. To compose these records, you must reflect on the events. The earth renews itself. From death comes new life. From hell, a paradise. But the serpent in this Eden doesn't want us to worship him. He wants us destroyed. But we refuse to die, don't we? We struggle for existence. We race into darkness like the losers did. Not knowing, perhaps never seeing what they fought, certainly not understanding. Yet they fought for life because they had to. We preserve what we have, then better ourselves. The Amazons forsook the wars of mankind for the peace of Paradise Island. Yet, when their existence was threatened, they fought for life. Monitor, we will survive.
Throughout the history of all worlds, all thinking creatures have fought for survival and freedom, whether in times when they battled with little more than stone, or when their enemies possess weapons far greater than theirs. Now our enemies become our allies. Those we fought against are now the very ones we fight alongside. The danger is to us all, but somehow we will survive. Somehow we will triumph. Somehow we will succeed even in the face of death. Monitor, the history of the universe from the dawn of fiery creation to its last smoking ember will be recorded here for all posterity. What you began, I shall gladly continue. It is my duty and shall not be forsaken.